Hi, and welcome to class number 16, our penultimate class on the Silmarillion. Today we go back to look a little more at Eärendil and the big U catastrophe at the end of the First Age, and then we spend some time discussing the causes of the downfall of Numenor. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, <clears throat> I want to come back to Eärendil, um, whose uh, career we scarcely touched upon. Um, one way, I also want to go back to Turgon a little bit because we, we sort of were uh, criminally brief in our discussion of the fall of Gondolin. Um, I'll do a little comparison and contrast. What's the difference between the careers, or at least the ends, of Turgon and Eärendil? If we compare these two, what do, they, what do they have in common? What are the sort of main differences between them? One story ends well, one story ends less well. Why? Well, let's review. What's Turgon's problem? Varda? Turgon's problem is that he, um, he doesn't take in Matur's words, and he's like, oh, I'm not going to leave Godwin. We're safe. I, I really like my city, so let's just chill here. Yeah. Good, and so we see the two different aspects there. Well, more than two, but two of the major aspects going on there are first his own pride, right? Oh, Gondolin is unassailable. There couldn't possibly be any problem. And secondly, loving too well the works of his own hands, right? I mean, exactly ignoring the warning that Olmo gave him before, love not too well the work of your own hands, and he does. He doesn't want to leave Gondolin, and he can't do it at the end of the day. Now think about Eärendil. What does he do? Elise? He goes and he, like, asks, or kind of like give forgiveness or deception. So he like realizes that he did something wrong, whereas Turgon doesn't, doesn't do that. So. Okay, good. The whole, you know, Eärendil is doing what Turgon refused to do. Remember, re, remember how Ulmo's warning ends, right? Love not too well the work of your own hands, and remember that the true hope of the Noldor lies in the west and comes over the sea. Eärendil remembers that, right? Um, so he is, his whole position in comparison with Turgon is, is the opposite. He's doing exactly what Turgon was supposed to do, which is to seek the true hope that lies over the sea. And of course, his whole attitude there, his whole outlook is therefore sort of radically opposite to Turgon's at the end. That is, Turgon focusing inward, keeping what he has, building it up, building his own, at least his own image of it, of his own power and security up, and Eärendil leaving it all behind. And instead of saying, I am sufficient unto myself, saying, I am going to supplicate and recognize his own faults, the faults of men and elves. Uh, he's not just saying, um, hey, can we get a little help over here? Right? That's not his message uh, to the Valar. I mean, that's kind of the heart of his message to the Valar, but it is also a recognition. Um, we know we don't deserve help. Um, we know we, 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 you know, I mean, the Noldor, you know, went into exile by their own choice. But, but please help. That is, he, he adopts that attitude of humility instead of pride. Jordan? What I find is interesting is they're both breaking rules just with different motivations, and that's what it's about. Um, they're both flouting the, the proclamations of the Valor, but because 
Tugan does it purely out of pride, and Eowendil does it purely out of humility, as you said. It, it's, it's a totally different thing. And it shows the spirit of the law is, is so strong that it can overcome the letters. That's a really that's a really great point. Both of them do defy explicitly defy the will of the Valar. Now, Omos was like a suggestion, right? It's not like you know he was saying, "And I decree unto you, Turgon, that you must leave." And Turgon is saying, "No," but I mean to say, "Gosh, Omo, I've considered your advice, and I think eh, you know, nah, I'm not going to listen to you." Um, still, I mean, I agree. The attitude towards that is totally different. But that, I think, is really neat. Remember the terms of Arendil's arrival. When he jumps off the boat onto the beach in Amman, what does he say to his crew? Elwyn goes to, you know, she jumps down with him. He's like, no, no, no. Oh, crap. And she jumps down. Why? And he doesn't let anyone else come. The rest of the crew, they never get off the boat. Why? He knows what's going on. He knows what's at stake. Tony? He'll never be allowed to return. Yeah. And and here, this is his recognition. I'm breaking the law here. I am going to bring myself under judgment. I am culpable for defying the will of the Valar in returning to Valinor. And, And I recognize that I'm going to be punished for this. I recognize that I'm not going to be able to return to Middle-earth. And again, this is another radical way in which Turgon and Eärendil are different. Eärendil isn't just not too attached to the things that he loves. He radically gives them up. When he sets foot on the, on the sand, he does so knowing, I will never see Middle-earth again. He doesn't expect to see Middle-earth again. He seems to expect to die. This is why so, you know, his, his trying to prevent Elwing from coming with him it should remind us of Baron and Luthien and Baron continually trying to send Luthien back home and go on by himself. It seems to be that, that same kind of impulse. But of course, Elwing, with the same kind of response that Luthien had, jumps down and says, no, because then I would be separated from you. Like Baron and Luthien, we are in this together too. What do you make of the time of festival? Eärendil's bizarrely anticlimactic arrival in Tyrion, and the place is deserted, and he actually begins to think there's been some kind of, you know, horrible apocalypse in Valinor itself. I mean, how ironic! How how uh, <laughs> how crushing would that be? Finally, you make it back to Valinor and you are walking on the strands of the Blessed Realm only to find that everyone's dead and it's empty. I mean, he's a little crushed. And he's turning dejectedly to walk back to the ship when Aonwe appears. Hey, we were just having our festival over here. Stuff like this always happens when we're having festival. Except, of course, this is the first time that a good thing has happened while they were having festival. What's the effect of that, of that parallel? I'm surprised no one has any reflections on this, as I know that there's, uh, you know, as I was trusting that you will have done nothing over this past weekend other than think about this question. Okay, perhaps this was a bad weekend in which to give this assignment. But what do you think? 
before I talked about, whenever we see these kinds of echoes, when we see these kinds of repeated patterns, we need to be thinking about what is, what is this overall mo- motif? What seems to be behind this? Why does this kind of thing keep happening? What does it point to? And three times now, we've had major catastrophes. In fact, arguably the three greatest catastrophes uh, that have been recorded have all happened in this same way at a time of festival. While the good people are celebrating goodness, the spring of Arda and the marriage of Tolkas, hey, hooray, and Melkor messes things up. Right, the, 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 the harvest feast, giving thanks to Iluvatar for his many bounties. Bam, darkening of Valinor. Ah, uh, we are coming still. We're, we're going to, to sing uh, in acclaim as the sun rises. To recognize the changing of the seasons and the sun rises in the wrong place. And instead it's dragons and balrogs and Gondolin Falls, the greatest of all of the, the cities and strongholds of Middle-earth. And now... The greatest good thing that has happened, the greatest event of the first age, the first age, by the way, is like everything from creation up until now, uh, the War of Wrath, the breaking of Thangorodrim, the, f- the final defeat of Morgoth and his being shoved through the hatch into outer darkness, uh, marks the end of the first age. We will go on to the second age. Of course, the Lord of the Rings takes place in the third age of Middle-earth. The second age is the one primarily dominated by Numenor. We read a a brief history of the second age, or at least uh, what was going on in Numenor during the second age in in the Akalabeth. So the greatest event of the first age also happens at a time of festival. Again, what do you make of the pattern? I asked you to look at, and we should look at together, Eonwi's speech that he makes when uh, he sees Eorendo. 248. Very bottom of the page. Hail, Eorendo, of mariners most renowned, the looked-for that cometh at unawares, the longed-for that cometh beyond hope. Hail, Eorendo, bearer of light before the sun and moon, splendor of the children of earth, star in the darkness, jewel in the sunset, radiant in the morning. To which the response is, so you're not going to kill me then? (laughs) This is going relatively well so far. What's emphasized here? Um, that he's sort of representative of life and hope. Yeah, yeah. The, what is most suggested by that pattern, what, what has been happening is darkening, right? All through the first two, explicitly. The third one also, metaphorically. Gondolin is, is a bright and shining city. Um, yeah, yeah. Here we have not just the echo, but a reversal within that echo. Light being brought to them. It, of course, is in one sense almost the exact reversal of the darkening of Valinor as the light of the trees which was extinguished then is being brought back to Valinor now for the first time by Aaron who's still wearing the silver on his brow, which is shining really brightly. Remember, that's how Feanor used to wear them, too. He used to wear all three of them on his brow. 
back in the day. That is, when he was not denying the sight of them to everybody else, right? Um, and so, again, that's reversed as well. Jordan? One thing I noticed that was really interesting is he recognized the irony of the treachery. Yes. The look for that cometh, I don't know where, but the long for that cometh to be on hope. So it's, well, thank goodness that this is happening instead of something else. Right. And also, you know, like a kind of a recognition, yeah, this stuff keeps happening when we don't expect it. You know, like, dang, I can't believe we got caught on the hop again. But actually, they can believe it. Because this is the kind of thing that happens. The thou art don't know all that's going to occur. He is both the looked for and the one that comes at unawares. The longed for that cometh beyond hope. They knew he was coming. They wanted him to come. And yet, unexpectedly. Remember, there was a, a reference to this earlier on when Orame comes across the elves. Remember how the Valar had been waiting and waiting and waiting for the children to be born? Aule waiting very impatiently, as you will recall, right? And then finally it happens by accident. Orome, minding his own business, riding through Middle-earth, hears the sound of singing and stops. And often that will occur, we are told at that moment, that these things will happen as by chance and will be surprising even to the Valar, things that were not foreseen by them in the music. The arrival of Eärendil not only brings about the great new catastrophe of the First Age, I mean, things have gotten as bad as possible in Beleriand. There's almost nobody left of the good guys. The last refuge where the few survivors of Gondolin and Doriath and Nargothrond and, 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 and also, you know, Círdan the Shipwright and his people and the Falas, all of them were just a few remnants living in this one little remaining small happy colony, which then gets crushed by the sons of Feanor, right, in the third kinslaying. So everything is scattered. Morgoth has finally won. It's over. And then, bam, the War of Wrath. Completely unexpected to him. We have massive eucatastrophe. But the thing to notice is that Eärendil himself is a eucatastrophe to the Valar. They have the same experience. Whoa, didn't see that coming. I mean, like, kind of did, but didn't. Knew it would happen, but wow so that they still have that same eucatastrophic experience. And certainly, the juxtaposition of that one with those three previous horrible things that have happened at times of festival helps to strengthen the impact of that. What happens to Morgoth? They um, take his crown and like turn it into like a leash almost. Yes. They beat his iron crown into a collar for his neck. Fantastic. This, of course, doesn't really change it. It always was a collar for his neck. It always was a burden weighing him down. He already had devised his own chain. So when that crown is taken and made into a slave's collar... They're just making explicit what he already was implying anyway. And they take him and they push him. As I say, they push him through the hatch. 
into the void. Which is where he started, you will remember. The first thing that differentiates Melkor from the other Valar is his tendency to go by himself into the void, seeking for the flame imperishable. Oh, knock yourself out with that, Melkor. That's what you'll be doing for the rest of time. Back to where you started, by yourself in the void. Like Ungoliant, his own desire creates his own punishment. And his final destruction and downfall is just a manifestation of what he'd been doing all along. I mean, remember, he is Lord of the Darkness. Uh, Well, in the end, Lord of the Darkness is exactly what he is. Which means, of course, Lord of Nothing. His punishment... Just like the collar, his ejection into outer darkness, it's a punishment which is like not even exactly a punishment, but rather a fulfillment of his own choices. This is, keep, keep doing what you're doing, Melkor. This is what you've been doing. We have a full half hour to talk about the Akalabeth. I'm really excited. Okay. Numenor. First, remember the context that we're given. The story of the Numenorians begins with a little sort of contextualization of the lives of of men, of humans in Middle-earth. Which is summed up pretty well at the end of the paragraph. And the lot of men was unhappy. Life pretty much sucked for men in Middle-earth. And this is the context that we are given, an important context that we're given for the Numenorians, Because among these men who are living this unhappy existence. Some are selected out and rewarded. The survivors, comparatively few to begin with, of the Adain, of the three kindreds, all three of the faithful kindreds, the people of Haleth, the people of Hador Goldenhead, that is Hurin's people in Dor Loman, uh, and the people of Barahir, Baron's people, of whom there are very, very, very few left other than Baron's direct descendants, get shipped off. They make them, especially they can't come to Valinor, but they, they, the Valar wump up a special island for them. What's it called? Endor. That's it. That's, talk about your trick questions, right? What's it called? Like, which of the ten names are, do you, are, are you referring to? <laughs> yeah, all of those. Andor was the one I was thinking of. The land of gift. Right, this is the first emphasis. We're, this, is, this is a gift. It's not the land of reward, even though it is in one sense it, given to reward them for their faithfulness. But it's a gift. Where is it located? Its geographical location is interesting and significant. Yeah, it's in the sea between Middle-earth and Valinor, but closer to Valinor. It's like, I don't know, 60, 70% of the way to Valinor. And that's clearly an evocative location, right? If we see, you can almost map that as a, you know, a bliss index, right? with the bliss index being approaching zero in Middle-earth and approaching infinity in, in Valinor, and they are, there's a halfway point, well, more than halfway point made for them, right? 
So they are, they are, they are separated out. They are, they are granted as much of the bliss of Valinor as they can. But then we also have the ban. What is the ban? The ban of the Valar upon the Numenorians. It's like their one law that they're given. Cassie, what is it? They can't sail west. Sail any further west than what? They still have to be able to see their own Yeah. They, they, they can't get out of sight of Numenor to the west. Or, you know, if you draw, like, a longitude line at that point, they can't go any further than that. That is the ban of the Valar. This becomes a problem. Right? They start to... Pretty soon, well, not pretty soon, after several thousand years. I'm halfway through the history, I checked. Yeah, it's. Uh, 13, 25. Years in the first age are almost uncounted. I mean, they don't even start keeping track of years uh, of time at all until the trees. Um, and they don't really start counting years until the sun rises. Um, so, goodness knows how long the first age was. Um, we often get these sort of glimpses of almost limitless time. Uh, the elves could have been living for what would have been thousands of years at Quivianen before Orome even found them. And there's this one reference to three ages passing, in some sense of age being defined. In Valinor, while Morgoth was chained, before he was then released, and then the Noldor started to go bad. So, I mean, the first age is really, 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 really long. The second age is also pretty long. We start to get, it's, things start to kind of, hasten a little bit, but the Numenorians are long livers, especially the descendants of Elros, son of Eärendo and Elwing, who is the first king. Um, he lives about 500-ish years. I mean, they, they, have, they, have, they have pretty long lives. So time, time is still long in the Second Age, though less long. But anyway, he's, they start to... I think I must employ my favorite Middle English word. They start to grutch. This is, a, this is a great Chaucerian word. Uh, to grutch means to complain or grumble about something, but it's one of the most evocative Middle English words I know. There's really just no modern substitute for the full sense of grutching. Uh, anyway, they, they start to grutch, not just about the ban, but against what? What's their problem, Marta? They start to complain about their own mortality. Yeah. Yes. Yes, death, death is the number one thing uh, that they are that they are grudging against. Why? What's the problem? What's their issue? Don? Uh, well, the messenger from the Valar says that the elves are given immortality because they're bound to the earth. And the men say, we love the earth too. Why, you know, we, we want to be bound to it. Why, why do we have to go into no one knows where? Yes, yes. Uh, they say, hey, why aren't we immortal too? Right? Remember how they, 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 they try to shift it? They say, well, hey, look, even the rebel Noldor, they're not made mortal. So they're like getting away with everything they did. And we who remain faithful are still punished by death. How is that just? What's the counter argument to this? Patiently given by the elves? Yeah. That, uh, death is still the gift of Iluvatar, even though the coming of Morgoth has made it seem surrounded by darkness and shadow. Yeah, don't forget. Death is not a, is not a bad thing. And it has nothing to do with your actions. 
like with the actions of your people, that immortality is not a reward given to the Noldor. These things are just, in both cases, they try to explain, expressions of your being. This is how Iluvatar made them and us. It's neither reward nor punishment in neither case. So we can already see them thinking about it not quite right. More on the point that Tony made about them loving the earth. They're like, oh, the elves love the earth and never leave it. We love the earth too. And we don't want to leave it. So why should we? What's the answer to that, Duncan? Um, The messenger says that Valar believe that the earth is not their home. It's not the, the human home. Good. So therefore, a different relationship is appropriate between humans and the earth and elves and the earth. Um, For elves, it is, in one sense, more okay, their love for the earth. But a human can easily exceed the bounds of appropriate or ordinate love for the world. Because, unlike for the elves, who are bound to this world and for whom it is their true home, it is not their true home. For we believe that your true home is elsewhere. And therefore, you're not supposed to be that attached. Okay, so does this mean that the love for the world is bad in humans? That the ideal, the thing that they should be doing if they were more obedient and, and, and you know, had things in line is to go around, is like a, you know, contempt for the world? Uh, the Valor hold that, um, that Ovatar has put the love for Arda in them for some purpose that they don't know what it is. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it, but it can get out of it. Just as you know, loving the work of your own hands, hey, that's a good thing. But it can get out of whack. And it's much easier for this, for the love of the world, to get out of whack for humans in that way. Yeah, Jordan? One interesting quote on page 264 is the Numenoreans before the messengers arrive are uh, 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 um, and their, their justification on why, why they're worthy of all this stuff that they're not actually worthy for is, have we not become mighty among the people of Oda? Yes. I mean, that's the worst possible justification. Yes, I agree. That's a terrible argument. Have we not become mighty among the children of Arda? Don't, don't we deserve more than we are being given? I mean, look at how awesome we are. Yeah, that's a bad argument. That's a bad argument, I agree. Yeah, Elise? They also say that they mastered all seeds, which isn't true because Uma is like the master of the seeds and they're not, so they're like already getting really arrogant and prideful in their description. Good. Yeah, I, and this is the beginnings of what we will see made more explicit later on. Right? When, remember when the, the, the faithful among the Numenorians are made deeply uncomfortable when the king takes upon himself the title Lord of the West and they're like, ooh, that's kind of Manway's title. Uh, that makes us really uncomfy. We see that same kind of uncomfiness, at least we should have it there. It's not, not only is it Olmo and not they who are masters of the sea, but they haven't mastered the sea. Why does no, no Numenorean ship ever sinks? Why? Because they're awesome? Because of like the intrinsic superiority of their seamanship? I mean, they are really powerful mariners, we're told. Marta? Um, well, they probably don't sink because they're blessed and they're protected. Yeah. So it's because of their fallow's will that they are able to do such great things. Yes. Um, we might remember 
the reference to, uh, to this way back in the Valaquenta in the description of Ase and Uinen, the two major Maiar who, who, who control the seas under Olmo, in the description of, uh, of, of, of Uinen, we are told the Numenorians lived long in her protection and held her in reverence equal to the Valar. They're protected by Uin, and that's why their ships never sink. Their ships start sinking later on. Why? Because they've like lost their skill at being mariners? No. Their skill, if, their skill and power is only increased, but that protection is withheld. So they, I mean, I think it's a great point, at least, because they're taking credit for something which is a gift. Remember, the island is called the land of gift. Everything you have is a gift to you. You know, Mr. King of Numenor, are we not become mighty among the people of Arda? Well, yes, because that's been given to you. So, yeah, we, we, that's a, clearly a dynamic that is heavily involved in what is leading them to go wrong here. Elise? Well, also, like, another thing that I found interesting on the next page when the messengers were talking, uh, the Numenorians, is that he said, like, even we don't know what your purpose is or where you end up, but you have to trust and have hope. Yes. Um, so again, it's like the, the hope of something that you're trusting and something you can't see, which is another um, recurring theme that we see like, throughout the story. Yes, good. I agree. They, they are in a position where they have to have faith. What is asked of us, they say, is a blind is 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 blind trust and a hope without assurance. We go, we know not where. We don't know where it is or what's going on. We don't. We're, we're not told anything about it, and yet we're supposed to just say we're okay with this on trust. Well, yes, exactly. You are, but the things that we see in them, the the pride in them, the way that they have begun to think about themselves, works against that. They want to be in control of their own fate. Just as they claim, as Elise says, to be master of the seas when they're not master of the seas, and safety at sea is a gift given to them, so they want to be master of their own fates when their own lives, their own existence is given to them on Iluvatar's terms, but they don't like that. They don't want that. The world they know. Because they're so happy, because they're so wealthy, because they're so comfortable, they want to stay there. We have good now. Look at how wonderful our lives are. We would rather like to continue this, more or less indefinitely. Immortality sounds good. I mean, everything is so great. If we left it, it'd kind of like almost have to be a step down, wouldn't it? Let's stick with what we know. A huge part of what's going on there. Remember also, one factor, and Kelly, I want to come back to something that you said earlier. Um, death has become dreadful to them because Morgoth confounded it with darkness and evil. But in the beginning, it was not so. Notice there's a kind of rebuke here implicit in that statement to the Numenorians in particular. When you live surrounded by darkness and horror, 
when, when you were back in Middle-earth with the, unha- the unhappy lot of mortals there, you know, fear of death is understandable. When you're in fact surrounded by darkness and the darkness you're surrounded by on a daily basis is actually full of horrible things which will catch you out alone at night and destroy you, then, you know, to be afraid of the darkness that surrounds your life, that is the darkness of ignorance anyway, you know, is understandable. What excuse do the Numenorians have? They're not surrounded by darkness. They're surrounded by light. They're surrounded by goodness. If anyone should have any conception of how good the gifts of Iluvatar are or can be, it'd be them, right? No one has been more blessed. No one more favored. No one made more comfortable, more openly the recipient of amazing gifts. If for anyone that blind trust should be easy, it should be them, right? But we find that what the story of the Numenoreans shows is that light brings its own temptations. Different ones from darkness, but temptations nevertheless. Yeah? Does that kind of imply that it's kind of the nature of men to always be striving to go past, whereas the elves typically are more satisfied and just kind of sit and do the same thing? Yay, things are great. But you always see men in later and more ways, too, just, you know, well, just that little next thing that we can go to. Yeah, I mean, of course, some of the elves do. I mean, like Feanor did, right? I mean, that. What Melkor did, Feanor did, and we see in various places, you know, people, Turgon did, um, kind of getting, a, getting beyond themselves and, above, and beyond their scope and things. But, uh, but do men do it more? Yeah, kind of. But also, remember, there's also another, there's one way in which that's a good thing in men. Um, it's only warped when it's misdirected. Remember, the men that we, the, the, the only men that we ever met who actually were surrounded by darkness that is, men when they first arrived in Beleriand and had never met the elves and didn't know anything um, and had just had come out of darkness. Remember, they come over the mountains and they're like, hooray, we've escaped from the evil, right? Oh, the irony. You recall this, right? Um, why, did they, why were they coming over the mountains? Why were they traveling west? Because there was this longing in them, that this big sense that there is light in the west that they are moving towards. That there is something beyond. When they were surrounded by darkness, they felt this calling to something beyond their state. To something that did, in fact, lie beyond that darkness. Now, when they're surrounded by light, they're again moving forward. But it's a, but it's a different kind. Yeah. yeah. Not that they're not going towards light. They just want to that 60%. Can't we bump up our bliss index a little bit more? I mean, come on. Yeah. And I do think that those desires are parallel. But the one is clearly the perversion of the other. And it's kind of ironic that in this way, the the men who are unhappy have, in this way anyway, they respond better. That desire is a desire towards light, towards goodness, which leads the Edain to become the Edain, right? In the Numenorians, it leads them (laughs) to the bottom of the ocean. Right, um, yeah, but, but 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 I think the two the two desires are clearly related. This perhaps helps us to understand the ban of the Valar. <coughs> right, one 
gets the pretty clear impression from the story of the Numenorians that, you know, the Valar knew what they were doing when they said, don't sail past this point. What were they doing? What's the purpose of the ban of the Valar? So they don't over, overpass their blitz? Yeah, you don't overpass the limits that are placed upon your blitz. You can't, there's a, there's a, there's a ceiling. It's not exactly a glass ceiling because we know exactly where it is, right? There's a ceiling on the happiness of, of man and don't try to go past this. Now that sounds kind of tantalizing. And it leads the Numenorians to think, well, see, they're just, they're just trying to keep us down. They don't want us to be as happy as they are. They want to keep the bliss of Valinor to themselves. And they begin to think, oh, the blessed, that's the land of immortality. People who live there live forever. And so we, we should go there and then we'll get immortality. And this, of course, is not true. What will happen to them if they go? I mean, like, they'll get swallowed up by the earth. But I mean, even if they went there peaceably, if the ban hadn't been, hadn't been made, and they just like, hey, I'm going to go on, I'm going to like have a summer home, uh, you know, in Tal Arisea, what would have happened to them? Chantel? Like Baron and Lucian, they wouldn't have been able to expand that much. It would kill them. Absolutely. It would kill them. They're not wired for that. It's an act of mercy on the part of the Valar. But I think there's, there's sort of two things that we can see. One is just the purely literal, sort of almost physical. Like, it will kill you if you, <laughs> if you have this much bliss. Too much worldly glory. You just, your system can't handle it. I'm sorry. You're, you're like, you're mortal. It's, just, it's going to totally short-circuit you, and you're going to go the pleasant but definite way of Baron and Luthien. It's going to speed up your death. This is what happens when people go to Valinor. It doesn't happen very often, but when mortals go... They die, not immediately, but quicker than they would have died. And as I've said before, great way to go, no complaints, but that's what happens. Um, so one is sort of like a literal protecting of them from themselves. I mean, you try to set up a summer, uh, you know, a summer beach house in Tal Arisea, you're not going to last long. But of course, there's more than that. That is that temptation. Don't try. Don't, we, we, we are warning you with the ban, the Valor are warning them proactively. Don't try to exceed the bounds of your bliss. Don't try, don't follow that warped version of that desire, of that longing. This is not your home. If you were to move to Valinor, even for argument's sake, saying you could handle it, if you were to move to Valinor, how could you possibly avoid thinking that you'd arrived, that this was your true home, that this was perfect happiness? Humans are denied 100% bliss on the earth, not out of cruelty or desire to deprive them, but because Iluvatar didn't intend them for 100% bliss on the earth. That doesn't mean that he didn't design them for 100% bliss anywhere, but their home is not here. And if they were to achieve 100% or something that looked to them like 100% bliss, they would think they had achieved it and that they were home. And they're not. And that would be confusion, a denial of their being. So really, this is for your own good, you people of Numenor. What do we see when they grudge the ban? What's really, what's really going on? Whom are they sinning against? Whom is their crime against? The Valor? I thought it was kind of against Luvatar because um, they weren't trusting him and they 
we're starting, you know, to defy him and say, oh, well, whatever you have designed for us isn't what we want, so we're just going to ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, good. I mean, it's the, 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 the messengers from Torah say I try to emphasize that, right? Hey, look, if you have a problem with the whole death thing, it's not our fault. It's not, take it up with management, right? This is how Iluvatar made you. You were trying to deny your being. This is so much more than saying, oh, we want to live with the elves and have everything that the elves have. The elves are like, we don't grudge you that. Thou are, you know, like, well, we're preventing you from being here, not because we care, but because what you are doing and complaining about and wanting to be immortal is, is, is denying the way that Iluvatar made you. And now we can see that and we can understand that in a couple different ways. That is, on the one hand, we can say, sort of in the mildest sense, oh, you are not receiving the gift that Iluvatar is trying to give you. That's a gentle way of saying it. But one could also characterize the same thing by saying they are, they are attacking Iluvatar. They are, they are rebelling against saying how you made us sucks and we won't submit to it. We want to be different. We are going to try to make ourselves different. We are going to try, despite you, Iluvatar, thanks for nothing, make ourselves over into the image that we want to be made over into. And that's, you know, kind of serious. The will of Eru may not be gainsaid, say the elves, but the Numenorians don't listen. Tony? We haven't really talked about how Sauron had a lot of influence over this, and, and sort of on the way, but I can't, can't get the image of, from the movie of Sauron out of my head. So <laughs> what, what does he appear to them as? take different forms? Yes. Uh, that is, it is important to remember at the very end of the Akalabeth, when uh, Saren has that moment where he, he stays home, he, he doesn't go with the fleet to attack Thon, he stays home and indulges in like a long maniacal cackle at their expense, right, <laughs> sitting in his temple uh, and thinking like, and now Numenor is mine, now that I've removed the pesky king and almost all of their armies, which, remember, could have kicked his butt. They come to Middle-earth to attack him. And he's, I mean, you know, as I've, I've told you, when we come to the Lord of the Rings, remember, you know, Sauron getting his cock cleaned by an elven damsel and a, and a dog by themselves, right, in, back in the first age. Similarly, here, remember, when he's, you know, when, when, when he's coming up against the armies of Gondor and everything in the third age, that thing that happened way back in the second age, where the king of Numenor says, hmm, this guy, Sauron in Middle-earth, has called himself the king of men. I think I will go teach him a lesson. And there's almost perhaps an anticipation on our part. They're going to be like, ooh, we see the pride of the Numenorians overreaching itself, right? They're going to, they're going to be humbled by this. No, not at all, right? They arrive and, 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 and they demand, Sauron, come out and, 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 and give yourself up uh, and, and, you know, say you're sorry. And Sauron came, right? Remember the, the echo of the Unmorgoth came, except... Almost the opposite. He, he comes out and he's like, I am very sorry. I'm going to send my, uh, I, I submit myself to be your prisoner. Because he knows they, they, can't, they can't fight the Numenorians. So he's gotten rid of their armies. Hooray! Now everything is his. Middle-earth is his. Numenor is his. Everything is working splendidly. Until, blam, Numenor falls into the abyss with Sauron. <laughs> now his spirit escapes. And when it, when it escapes, we're told that at that point he could no longer take a fair-seeming Guys, he, like all the other Maiar and Valar to that point, could clothe himself outwardly however he wanted to. 
And there are several occasions on which he has done that already, uh, adopting a, a pleasing appearance uh, and deceiving people so that they don't even realize that he's a Maiar. Um, we, will, we haven't read this yet, but it has already happened chronologically before this moment. Um, he's already forged the one ring by the time he goes to Numenor. Um, remember, there's that brief reference of when he comes back afterwards that he took up his, his ring again. Um, but anyway, so he's already forged the one ring, um, and he deceived the elven craftsman in a pleasing shape. We'll read about that for next time. Um, but he's already done this, so, and, and clearly he does the same thing in Numenor. You know, he's like, I am like the wise counselor to the king. And he deceives, he, he, is, he is an excellent deceiver. But from that point on, he is never again, like Morgoth, also reached that point where he's never again able, this is when he was burned by the Silmarils, right? Never again able to take a form that was pleasing. Um, and is stuck in the shape of the tyrant of Utumno, right? So Sauron gets stuck in his shape, which, by the way, does not appear to be uh, like a 50-foot eyeball. <laughs> Just to clarify, flaming or otherwise, it's, he, he appears to have physical form, and he can't really change his form. Um, but prior to that, yeah, he could be real, real attractive and charming. Uh, in fact, he was known for being really attractive and, and charming um, prior to the whole sucked down into the abyss incident, um, which he rather regrets in retrospect. But what was I saying? About, I was just about to go to... Oh, yeah. Notice that we talk about the rebellion against Iluvatar. Notice the correlation. The relationship between the Numenorians and Iluvatar is emphasized by the fact that they have the one temple, the one shrine that we have ever seen or will ever see in Tolkien's world. The, the, the hallow of Eru on the Minotarma, where they present every year the first fruits of the harvest, uh, and, and they worship Iluvatar there explicitly. The only place you'll ever see them doing it. Anybody. Um, and when they begin to complain about the ban, and when they begin to try to prevent death, is when they begin to neglect the, 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 the offerings to Eru quite naturally. So again, so we can see the explicit correlation between these two, between these two things. Uh, what Sauron does, he, does I mean, he doesn't create anything. That is, he doesn't make anything happen. He doesn't... Uh, their rebellion isn't anything new. After he, he gives it sort of more explicit form. Right? He, he sort of channels it into more openly rebellious channels, but he doesn't give them any new impulses that they didn't already have. And when he's like, you know, you should really, uh, that Eru, you know, he's just, a, he's just a fable. The real Lord is Melkor, Lord of all, and you should worship him. Well, they already kind of were. It's not a substantive change. They begin performing human sacrifices. Well, that's a change in policy. But at the same time, it's not exactly a change in policy. That's what they were always doing, at least since they started complaining about death. Their attitude towards humanity, towards being human, as Iluvatar designed them. That was what was always going on, again, at least since then. Our Farazan's insane war. I'm going to march, well, sail to Valinor and take it by force. Well, Again, you're just making literal and physical what you're already doing. Now, uh, 
the good guys recognize this too. The elves know what's at stake here, that it's not about them. The Valar know it's not about them either. What does Manway do? When they land, right, the elves in Tol Arisea are just like, not doing anything, nothing to see here, keep going. They retreat from Tyrion again. They land and there's nobody there. What does Manway do? He goes to um, he, he sets aside his stewardship of the world because he knows this is not about him. This is, this is between the Numenorians and Iluvatar himself. So Manway steps aside and says, Iluvatar, I'm going to let you take care of this one. And whammo, Iluvatar takes care of this. Now, what I want to talk at the beginning of next time about explain to me the significance of the steps that Iluvatar takes. It's pretty impressive. But what's behind it? What, what are the patterns there? What do we see? How do we see Iluvatar responding to what the Numenorians do? Thanks a lot. See you on Wednesday. When we shall finish the Silmarillion, when, when you shall do what many, many have not done and finish the Silmarillion. Okay, come back next class for a look at the implications of Iluvatar's epic smiting of Numenor and a discussion of the Rings of Power. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.